Part One of This Simian World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Epistomolus. This Simian World by Clarence Day, Jr. How I hate the man who talks about the brute creation with an ugly emphasis on brute. As for me, I am proud of my close kinship with other animals. I take a jealous pride in my simian ancestry. I like to think that I was once a magnificent hairy fellow living in the trees, and that my frame has come down through geological time via sea jelly and worms and amphioxus, fish, dinosaurs, and apes. Who would exchange these for the pallid couple in the Garden of Eden? W.N.P. Barbellion 1. Last Sunday Potter took me out driving along Upper Broadway, where those long rows of tall new apartment houses were built a few years ago. It was a mild afternoon, and great crowds of people were out. Sunday afternoon crowds. They were not going anywhere. They were just strolling up and down, staring at each other, and talking. There were thousands and thousands of them. "'Awful, aren't they?' said Potter. I, I didn't know what he meant. When he added, "'Why, these crowds?' I turned and asked, "'Why, what about them?' I wasn't sure whether he had an idea or a headache. "'Other creatures don't do it,' he replied with a discouraged expression. Are any other beings ever found in such masses but vermin? Aimless, staring, vacant-minded, look at them! I could get no sense whatever of individual worth or of value in men as a race when I see them like this. It makes one almost despair of civilization. I thought this over for a while, to get in touch with his attitude. I myself feel differently at different time about us human beings. Sometimes I get pretty indignant when we are attacked, for there is altogether too much abuse of us by spectator philosophers, and yet at other times I too feel like a spectator, an alien. But even then I had never felt so alien or despairing as Potter. Let's remember, I said, it's a simian civilization. Potter was staring disgustedly at some vaudeville signboards. Yes, I said, those, for example, are distinctively simian. Why should you feel disappointment at something inevitable? And I went on to argue that it wasn't as though we were descended from eagles, for instance, instead of, broadly speaking, from ape-like or monkeyish beings. Being of simian stock, we had simian traits. Our development naturally bore the marks of our origin. If we had inherited our dispositions from eagles, we should have loathed vaudeville. But as cousins of Banderlog, we loved it. What could you expect? 2. If we had been made directly from clay, the way it says in the Bible, and had therefore inherited no intermediate characteristics, if a god or some principle of growth had gone that way to work with us, he or it might have molded us in much more splendid forms. But considering our simian descent, it has done very well. The only people who are disappointed in us are those who still believe that clay story, or who, unconsciously, still let it color their thinking. 
There certainly seems to be a power at work in the world, by virtue of which every living thing grows and develops, and it tends toward splendor. Seeds become trees, and weak little nations grow great. But the push or the force that is doing this, the yeast as it were, has to work in and on certain definite kinds of material. Because this yeast is in us, there may be great and undreamed-of possibilities awaiting mankind. But because of our line of descent, there are also queer limitations. 3. In those distant invisible epochs, before men existed, before even the proud missing link strutted around through the woods, little realizing how we his great-grandsons would smile wryly at him much as our own descendants may shudder at us ages hence, the various animals were desperately competing for power. They couldn't or didn't live as equals. Certain groups sought the headship. Many strange forgotten dynasties rose, met defiance, and fell. In the end, it was our ancestors who won, and became simian kings, and bequeathed the whole planet to us, and have never been thanked for it. No monument has been raised to the memory of those first hairy conquerors, yet had they not fought well and wisely in those far-off times, some other race would have been masters, and kept us in cages, or show us for sport in the forest while they ruled the world. So Potter and I, developing this train of thought, began to imagine we had lived many ages ago, and somehow or other had alighted here from some older planet. Familiar with the ways of evolution elsewhere in the universe, we naturally should have wondered what course it would take on this earth. Even in this out-of-the-way corner of the cosmos, we might have reflected, and on this tiny star, it may be of interest to consider the trend of events. We should have tried to appraise the different species as they wandered around, each with its own set of good and bad characteristics. Which group, we'd have wondered, would ever contrive to rule all the rest? And how great a development could they attain to thereafter? 4. If we had landed here after the great Saurians had been swept from the scene, we might first have considered the lemurs or apes. They had hands. Aesthetically viewed, the poor simians were simply grotesque, but travelers who knew other planets might have known what beauty may spring from an uncouth beginning in this magic universe. Still, those frowsy, unlovely hordes of apes and monkeys were so completely lacking in signs of kingship, they were so flighty, too, in their ways, and had so little purpose, and so much love for absurd and idle chatter, that they would have struck us, we thought, as unlikely material. Such traits, we should have reminded ourselves, persist. They are not easily left behind, even after long stages, and they form a terrible obstacle to all high advancement. 5. The bees or the ants might have seemed to us more promising. Their smallness of size was not necessarily too much of a handicap they could have made poison their weapon for the subjugation of rivals. And in these orderly insects there are obviously a capacity for labor, and cooperative labor at that, which could carry them far. We all know that they have a marked genius, great gifts of their own. In a civilization of super-ants or bees, there would have been no problem of the hungry unemployed, no poverty, no unstable government, no riots, 
no strikes for short hours, no derision of eugenics, no thieves, perhaps no crime at all. Ants are good citizens. They place group interests first. But they carry it so far, they have few or no political rights. An ant doesn't have the vote, apparently. He just has his duties. This quality may have something to do with their having groups' wars. The egotism of their individual spirits is a loud, scant expression, so the egotism of the groups is extremely ferocious and active. Is this one of the reasons why ants fight so much? We have seen the same phenomenon occur in certain nations of men, and the ants commit atrocities in and after their battles that are, I wish I could truly say, inhuman. But conversely, ants are absolutely unselfish within the community. They are skillful, ingenious. Their nests and buildings are relatively larger than man's. The scientists speak of their paved streets, vaulted halls, their hundreds of different domesticated animals, their pluck and intelligence, their individual initiative, their chaste and industrious lives. Darwin said the ant's brain was one of the most marvelous atoms in the world, perhaps more so than the brain of man, yes, of present-day man, who for thousands and thousands of years has had so much more chance to develop his brain. A thoughtful observer would have weighed all these excellent qualities. When we think of these creatures as little men, which is all wrong, of course, we see they have their faults. To our eyes they seem too orderly, for instance, regressively so. Their ways are more fixed than those of the old Egyptians, and their industry is painful to think of. It's hyper-Chinese. But we must remember this is a simian comment. The instincts of the species that you and I belong to are of an opposite kind, and that makes it hard for us to judge ants fairly. But we and the ants are alike in one matter. The strong love of property. And instead of merely struggling with nature for it, they also fight other ants. The custom of plunder seems to be a part of most of their wars. This has gone on for ages among them, and continues today. Raids, ferocious combats, and loot are part of an ant's regular life. Ant reformers, if there were any, might lay this to their property sense, and talk of abolishing property as a cure for the evil. But that would not help for long unless they could abolish the love of it. Ants seem to care even more for property than we do ourselves. We men are inclined to ease up a little when we have all we need, but it is not so with ants. They can't bear to stop. They keep right on working. This means that ants do not contemplate. They heed nothing outside of their own little rounds. It is almost as though their fondness for labor has closed fast their minds. Conceivably, they might have developed inquiring minds. But this would have run against their strongest instincts. The ant is knowing and wise, but he doesn't know enough to take a vacation. The worshipper of energy is too physically energetic to see that he cannot explore certain higher fields until he is still. Even if such a race had somehow achieved self-consciousness and reason, would they have been able therewith to rule their instincts, or to stop work long enough to examine themselves, or the universe, or to dream of any noble development? Probably not. Reason is seldom or never the ruler. It is the servant of instinct. It would therefore have told the ants that incessant toil was useful and good. Toil has brought you up from the ruck of things, reason would have plausibly said. 
It's by virtue of feverish toil that you have become what you are. Being endlessly industrious is the best road for you to the heights. And, self-reassured, they would have had orgies of work, and thus, by devoted exertion, have blocked their advancement. Work and order and gain would have withered their souls. End of Part 1 Recording by Epistomolus, Cupertino, California, epcomm.com slash school.